0: That all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's make sure that's not just a memory verse that we've memorized, but one that we bring to the exposition of Scripture, that we actually believe that this is the living and active Word of God, which works in us mightily as God speaks to His church and conforms them to the image of His own beloved Son. Last week, we began looking at this section of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks to the saints at Ephesus about putting off and putting on, and today he's going to add some more particular, some specificity to that which he already said last week. I'd remind you, that the church at Ephesus was a small island of despised people in a giant cesspool of wickedness. I hope that it was clear last week that we, we think that our day and age is dark enough, but we've got nothing on Ephesus. Most of the believers had themselves once been part of that paganism, the rampant paganism all around them. They frequently passed by places where they once caroused and ran into friends with whom they once indulged in debauchery. They faced continual temptations to revert to the old ways, and the apostle therefore admonished them to resist. And if you could remember what he exhorted us towards last week and said to them, this I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk. Peter gave a similar word when he wrote in his first epistle, chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. In other words, you spent enough time serving the devil as a rank pagan before you came to faith in Christ, now is time to capture our time. He goes on in the verse, saying, heaven pursued a a course of sensuality and lusts and drunkenness, carousals. Drinking parties and abominable idolatries, and in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. You remember what it was like, those that you came in contact with after you came to faith in Christ, those that you used to live in the world with, and you'd no longer be part of the game anymore. And you got a chance right on the spot to share your testimony that you are no different from them except for God and His grace reached down and plucked you as a brand from the burning. On the basis of what we are in Christ, we've studied Ephesians 1 through 3, who we are in Christ, and all that God now purposes for us as His redeemed and beloved children. We are to be absolutely distinct from the rest of the world, which does not know Christ and does not follow Christ, though many of them make a pretense to following Him. Spiritually, we've already left the world and we're now citizens of heaven. And so though we do things as citizens in America, like vote and try to hold back the corruption as much as we can, our hope is not there. We're citizens of a different land. So we're not to love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God, how does John finish it? Abides forever. And so that's our admonition from Holy Scripture. Paul writes uh, in uh, a parallel account in in Colossians. He, He warns the Colossians. To beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and empty traditions of the world and not after Christ, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So beware of practicing anything but the gospel. Don't fall prey for the Stoics of their day and their moralism. But virtuous conduct, which is a consequence of a new identity in Christ, that's totally different. That's not an empty behavior modification. Whereas he, Paul, led into the distinctiveness of the Christian walk rather indirectly in the previous verses that we've looked at, Paul now begins some very clear moral exhortations in rapid rapid fire several imperatives, several commands, living out this new identity in the community of believers called the church. Think of it this way. As he told us last week, put off and put on, think about the difference between grave clothes and wedding clothes. In culture, there is a certain decorum. You don't wear grave clothes to a wedding Nor do you wear the bright apparel of a wedding to a funeral. Some clothes are more suited than others for particular occasions or activities. John Stott gives this illustration. He says, we normally wear light, bright clothes for a wedding and dark, somber clothing for a funeral. Some clothes are determined by one's profession, doctors and nurses, armed forces, or How about prisoners who have their clothes assigned, and when they are released, they exchange the prison clothes for freedom clothes of their own choice. So Paul's appeal is for Christians to put off conduct that was associated with their former life, apart from Christ, that idolatry. And part of the new pattern of behavior, just as they might put on a new dress or a new suit put on these new virtues that are now possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ and His abiding Holy Spirit. As I already mentioned, we're powerless for for politics to save us, but salt and light must be a powerful force for our dark world to reckon with, and so Paul rallies the call that God made Made them new creatures by putting away the old nature and putting on the new. Our grave clothes were appropriate for the rotten corpses when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 1. But now that we're alive, we're to act like members of the wedding party and get ready for the wedding supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. So the call is on with much specificity for us this morning. Would you follow along as I read from us? Ephesians four twenty-five to 32. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Notice five contrasts of conduct to the old life and the new that Paul sets before our eyes. Numerous vices to take off that hinder community life, and several virtues to appropriate building up the new community of faith in the church. You'll notice the first one he starts with in verse 25, from lying to truth-telling. Truth telling. And he begins this verse with that famous word, therefore. And so, what do we ask in Bible study when we see a therefore? What is it? Therefore. And so, you got to go and review what we've already studied up to that point for this reason. So, having established the believer's position as a new person, this is what it is to look like. So, we need to remind ourselves what he's already stated. Because salvation is spiritual union with Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection. Said differently, if, if you are in Christ today, you, there's come a time in your life that you've forsaken your way of sin, you've repented, and you've placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, your old self died. And having been resurrected to a new life, you walk in newness of life. How did he start this whole chapter in, in, back in verse 1? He said, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. If you're child of the king, act like it. It's not the addition of the new self to the old self. The old self is dead. In Christ, the old self, the unconverted nature, in all its corruption no longer exists. What did he say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17? That if any man be in Christ, he is what? A remade old man? No. He's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things in his life have become new. He's a new man. The new self. He's not some some sort of spiritual schizophrenic that is old and new, mashed together. This is the transforming wonder of regeneration. So he ties all of these imperatives, all these exhortations to their position in Christ. This is the transforming wonder of regeneration. It was laid aside back in verse 22 that we looked at last week. In reference to your former manner of life, you laid it aside with all its corruption. It's gone. It's not something for them to do. It's something that God did the day they got saved. So, their, their focused attention is to be mind renewal in the next verse. So if verse 2 is what God did in their lives, verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It is continued in the believer's life. Turn back with me to Romans 12 for just a second, probably another familiar passage to most of you. But to insert in your thinking here, Romans 12, beginning in the first verse, therefore, After all the doctrinal realities, he has unfolded verse after verse of holy writ. He said, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's your responsibility. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So if the old man is dead and done away with, we said last week he still likes to try to peek his head up over the over the back wall of our lives to say, I'm alive, and that it's our responsibility to lay it aside with all of its corruption. It's not a one-time accomplishment, but a continual work of the Spirit with the Word and prayer. We are new, but we're not all new. We are righteous and holy, but not perfectly righteous and holy. You see the difference? Any of you who have been involved in in ministry in rescue missions would know that uh, part of rescue missions is you have a, a delousing room where the derelicts who have not had a bath in months discard their old clothes and are thoroughly bathed and disinfected. And it would be ludicrous after bath time to put on those nasty rank clothes that they came in off the street from. And so those unsalvageable clothes, doesn't matter uh, how much tide you have, it's not going to do any good. So you've got to burn them. New clothes are issued. The clean man provided clean clothes, not old clothes. That's the picture of salvation, except that in salvation, the new believer isn't simply given a bath, but a completely new nature in that transaction of regeneration. The continuing need of the Christian is to keep discarding and burning the remnants of the old sinful clothing. Paul put it put it this way in his epistle to the Romans, Romans six thirteen. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So as we see this one therefore, of the many therefores of the New Testament, these are appeals to new creatures that they are in Christ, because of our new life, our new Lord, our new nature, and our new power of the Spirit of God, we're therefore called to live a correspondingly new lifestyle. So putting on the the new self involves getting rid of certain evil practices and, and replacing them with godly virtues. You might have noticed your bulletin front this morning, which I borrowed from Dr. Adams' One of his books on dehabituation, rehabituation, biblical counseling. We talk with people about now that you're, you've come to faith in Christ, what what are the old habits that we need to help you in putting away, and so that we can have the correspondingly righteous habits to replace them with. Not a, not just a matter of shaking off the old, but putting on the new in consistent practice in our lives, and that, that takes a life a lifetime of progressive sanctification. So, as, he, as Paul maintains the tension between who we are in Christ and who we are, we are to become by imperative command, there's the obligation to take off and to put on. This changed behavior, rather than being a damning moralism or behavior modification, this change flows out of our new identity in Christ. We do it out of love for Him, not bootstra- where we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to create change. John Calvin put it this way, from the, from the righteousness of the new man, all godly exhortations flow like streams from a spring. So if you're if you've been born again of the Spirit of God, from that spring of salvation come these drives and these desires so that we can more consistently practice who we are in Christ. So, first vice that he calls us to rid ourselves is to rid yourself of falsehood or lying. Any form of lying and deceit. Earlier, when you were part of Satan's family, which we're all born onto planet earth in, we not only lied, but we were devoted to the lie. The lie. Against God's ultimate truth. So that when, when Satan lies, he's just speaking his, natu- his, his native language. He's a liar and the father of it. John tells us that in John 8, 44. So if you as a Christian lie, try to shade the truth, you betray your identity. We must be characterized as truth-tellers. When is a liar no longer a liar? According to the paradigm Paul gives us, it's not just when you cease lying. Because if you have been practicing habitually lying, why is anybody to believe anything that comes from your mouth from that point forward? And so you replace that ungodly practice of lying with truth-telling. So a liar is no longer a liar, not when he stops lying, but when he takes up truth-telling as a way of life. He puts on habitually truth-telling as a way of life. When you repudiate the lie, you embrace the truth so that everything corresponding with your life is Truth by way of application, just to, um, in thinking about us being truth-tellers, this is a foundational virtue, not just of Christianity, but of, of relationships in general. That's why if, those of you that are parents, why it, it hurts so bad, it feels like you've gotten stabbed with a knife when your kid lies to you because there's, there's been that breaking of a sacred trust of we're in relationship together and you've broken that trust. That's why it also takes a lot of time after an adulterous affair, if by God's grace there is restoration, for a spouse to develop a reputation of being a truth teller because there was the ultimate violation of the lie against their sacred vows. And so it takes a a pattern of behavior to demonstrate to their loved one that I really messed up. And I'm going to have a habit of showing you I am true to the vow, I am true to the truth, you know, we were returned from idols and Satan to Jesus, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, you know, as we think about, well, I'm a truth teller. I, I don't lie, really. You think about the several nuances uh, of uh, you know, how you need to be rigor- rigorously cultivating the truth. We need to be teaching our kids that there is no such thing as like a, a white lie or, or shading the truth. Or it's, it's not minimal. It's, it's a real issue. To teach them to be accurate with the truth rather than careless with the truth in this world of falsehood because it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us. I remember an old neighbor we had in California. He couldn't believe I was preparing my taxes, and uh, he came over and said, you don't actually do that, do you? I said, "Yeah." I said, "You know where we go to church? Twelve doors down." And uh, I said, "I said everyone at the church does too." It looks at me like I'm some weirdo got two heads on my shoulders. It's like this is what we do because we are truth tellers. We have to do what the law requires us to do from the heart outward. So Paul comes alongside these these new believers and he said, "Make sure you lay aside falsehood and replace it with speaking the truth." And, and he gives the rationale for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. The main reason for eliminate lying and developing truthful speech is that we belong to the body of Christ. Remember what Paul said to the, the Romans in Romans twelve five. He said, though we are many... We are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So though we all have different giftings from the Spirit of God, we are one united body. And so to, to lie is to betray that union, that sacred trust that we have with each other. And so he gives this rationale for we are members of one another. We're devoted to the one who is truth, John fourteen six, And we're devoted to the body, Because we're devoted to both body and the head, we can't jeopardize and hurt the relationship with such a devastating blow. Then he, right off the bat, gives a second contrast of conduct here in the next verse. Uh, Next two verses, actually, that you put off being angry and yet don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. This second admonition warns of the dangers of anger and, and cautions that it is best to be dealt with quickly. Now, you'll notice that this is a different kind of vice that he deals with in that there, there's an appropriateness to anger. Anger is not sin. Did you hear me? Anger is not sin, but it very quickly can becomes sin because it's so dangerous and seductive. It can easily turn upward towards a trespass against God's law, though at first it might have started out as zeal for God's law and God's glory. Notice that, uh, the next, uh, that verse 6 is in italics in your translation, be angry and yet do not sin. It's in italics because it's a citation from the uh, Greek Septuagint of uh, Psalm four four. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. So there's this distinction to be made between sinful and sinless wrath. David expressed his distress over how God's people were pursuing idolatry. As God often, uh, God's often angered in the Old Testament over His people's idolatry. We read in Deuteronomy 32.21, God says, they made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. Unless you think that there's a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, let me remind you go, go back to Matthew's Gospel for a moment, Matthew 21, to remind you how the, the Son of God experiences this on several occasions. Matthew 21. We're told in verse 12 that when Jesus entered the temple, he drove out all who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Think of that. The Son of God with righteous indignation cleansing the temple. Going back to Ephesians, though Paul's not specifying here what appropriate forms of anger are, so that we can find out, okay, what can I, what kind of anger can I have, uh, so I can uh, know what not to have. It's clear that the believing community, when they compromise with pagan idolatry around them, that it it is uh, calls for righteous indignation. I trust that you've been incited righteously towards anger at the constant compromise within evangelicalism. Those that claim to be followers of Jesus and that they, they, they can't get angry about anything. They're, the call is for tolerance, peace at all costs. Beloved, can we remember that it is wrong to not be angry in the face of injustice? Though we can be angry at the wrong time, We can be angry for wrong reasons. Where are the saints of God that are seething in their anger against the atrocities of murder in the womb? That ought to be the safest place for little ones. Calls for an outrage. Some of the idolatries that Paul mentions are things later on in chapter 5 and verse 5. Sexual immorality and greed. In Colossians, he expands the definition to be whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Colossians 3.5. If I could quote the psalmist again, in Psalm 119.53, he exclaims, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. You know, Especially as evangelicalism, uh, evangelicals are, are trampling on the law of God when they ought to be telling the truth of the Word of God. And though this, this verse is an imperative, it may not be presenting an unqualified direct command. He's not, he's not just trying to command us, oh, you need to be angry. Later on in verse 31, he's going to uh, condemn anger. So what's he saying here? I think he's, he's trying to help us see that he affirms the appropriateness on certain occasions And in so doing, validates the Lord himself, who, as the Lord Jesus walked planet earth and observed people's hardness of heart, Mark 3, 5 tells us that he looked around at them with anger, with anger. John Stott correctly observes, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant; angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours also. Unquote. You know, there, there needs to be much more anger for what angers God. But, friend, be careful because you and I are not him. So it's easy to read on the page of Scripture Jesus uh, getting a, a cord and, and uh, turning over the, the tables. And, uh, well, we know that the Son of God was not guilty of unrighteous anger, but we're not he, are we? And so it's a thin line between sinful anger and righteous. So he gives us some, pra- uh, some practical training wheels on the truth to help us with this anger. He says here in verse 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's just pointing to a time limit. If you allow anger to, to fester and to swell and to surge for an extended period, it is quite dangerous because you know what he says in the next verse, don't give the devil an opportunity. It's very easy to give a place to the devil and against this is a caution of the danger that anger, if anger persists, whether it's righteous or unrighteous anger, make sure there's a timetable given. The devil's going to exploit it in any way possible. I, I re- remember a story of uh, two believers in, in one particular church, and this. This one brother was confronted by a professing sister in Christ, and, you know, she emails the guy, you know, you know communion's coming up, want to get right, right with the Lord, and, uh, um, and, and yet the way this professing sister in Christ went about it was totally sinful, and so the brother could not respond, and every time he refused to respond to her uh, alleged uh, issues, the hostility grew astronomically because it wasn't dealt with, and it grew every single time. And I think that's what Paul's helping us picture here, that there needs to be a time frame here. Don't let it go down. You and I have a vested interest in bringing anger under control, both the kind of anger and the intensity of anger. The reformer, Calvin, said, I have no doubt that Paul was warning us to beware lest Satan should take possession of our minds like an enemy occupied fortress and do whatever he pleases. Paul's not advocating demonic possession for believers here. But there can be this oppression as you become a pawn to further his goals of stunting the growth in the community. Beware of that. Be righteously anger, angry, angry about the sins of society against a holy and righteous God, even the sins of the church against their Lord. Be angered about it. But don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give place to the devil to manipulate it for his advantage. Notice the third exhortation he's got for us in 24, from stealing to sharing. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So in place of theft, he commends hard work. Thievery is something condemned by the Eighth Commandment in Exodus 20 and verse 15. And I wonder if, if Paul is not thinking hypothetically here. As, as we're looking at these common vices, th- these could be issues that these new saints in Christ were, were dealing with, and thus the call to put off and to put on. Real issues at Ephesus. And before you quickly dismiss this as no problem in your life, for I, I, don't, I don't steal, right? Aren't there various ways that we steal? We, we steal from God when we fail to worship Him as we ought Or when we set out our own interests before his legitimate interests, that's robbing from God. We steal from him when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best work that we are capable of or waste time, in contrast to Scripture that tells us whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Or maybe you're consistently leaving early, you're robbing from your boss. If you're in business, you can steal by overcharging for what you make and the service that you render. You can steal if, if selling things by giving an in, in, inferior product or pretending it's better than it really is. It might be almost the best thing since sliced bread, but you market it as the best thing. Yeah, you know, we steal by, by borrowing and not repaying, steal by damaging another's reputation. We even steal from ourselves and from others when we waste the time and the talents and the resources that God's entrusted to us as His stewards to minister to the body. It's robbery. Paul says we are to move from stealing to being known as those that work hard and those that, that share. Regardless, when, when looking at the importance of rehabituation, putting off sinful habits, and putting on righteous ones for the glory of Christ... When's a thief no longer a thief? Not when he stops stealing, but when he works hard to live and to give. He labors that way. That term, he must labor, has the idea of working to the point of weariness or exhaustion. Is that the kind of effort that you apply to your work? This is to be the new pattern of life, the regular practice even of those who used to steal. And if you ever wonder... If you make enough, if, if, if we boil down all the principles of the Word of God on giving to uh, God's given money to live and to give, so we haven't made enough if all we can do is take care of our families. We're supposed to constantly be looking for how can we, how can we uh, by God's grace, make enough so that we can help out others in need so that we're not robbed of the blessing of helping them out. Are you in the practice of sharing with other, other believers who have a real and genuine need? That's why we try to do the deacon's fund the first Sunday of the, of the month to try to help people. That's why you practice hospitality, and that's why we go over and help people move and all these other issues. Body life. Think about the practice of the early church when believers brought money and materials to the apostles, Acts chapter 4 and verse 35. We're told that they laid them at the apostles' feet and the apostles distributed to each as any had need. What a glorious picture of the body working in harmony. And the motive of our hard work is not that we can improve our self-esteem. It's not so that we can live the good life. It is so that we can get our families through life and help others through life as well. None can live merely for himself and neglect others. So Paul gives us a a fourth exhortation here. Paul moves on to how we speak with one another. Are you ready for a little conviction here? Uh, look Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." So we move from unwholesome words to edifying words, words that build up. He's aware of the the immense power of words to hurt or to help, the power of words to tear people down or to build them up in Christ. So to talk of unwholesome talk, he describes it here as filthy. It's rotten. It's putrid. It's a term that could be used to describe rotten wood. It could be used to describe diseased lungs or rancid flesh or, or withering flowers or rotten fruit. And I just had to pick out, uh, pick out the rotten blueberries uh, this morning getting ready for breakfast and whatnot. That's, that's the idea here, that which is, is not healthy whatsoever to ingest. It's not healthy for the body to ingest any of those unwholesome words. And he'll elaborate more in chapter 5 and in verse 4, but... One commentator suggests Paul's trying to condition us to have a a gag reflux, sort of, uh, to unhealthy ways of talking that'll, that'll repulse us and cause us to clean up our act, clean up our mouth, clean up our speech. Rather than using it to manipulate people, using it to motivate people. It's too easy to be careless with this tongue. That's why it needs to remain behind the cage of our teeth. It needs to be replaced with with that which is good. It's the opposite of rotten. And in order to do so, we need this mind renewal. We need to think differently so that we can act different and speak different. Frank Gabalian wrote, quote, Tongue control? It will never be achieved unless there is, first of all, heart and mind control. When any Christian comes to the point of yielding to the Lord in full sincerity, cost what it may, control of his thought life, the problem of managing his tongue will be solved, provided that such a surrender goes deeper than the intellect and reaches the emotions and will. For the Bible makes a distinction between mere intellectual knowledge of God and the trust of the heart. And so might we have trusting hearts as we minister those timely words. As we're in ministry with and to one another, we need to cultivate encouraging speech and, and helpful words. Don't be inconsiderate, beloved. Are you clued in to how you come off to people? Not just what you say, but how you say it, body language. Before you're, you too quickly import uh, Colossians here, I think the parallel in Colossians 4.6 speaks more of our interaction with outsiders. It is very clear here in Ephesians that uh, we're talking about believers with each other. How is your speech not just to the world, but to the body of Christ? Are you ministering words according to the need? How clued in to the needs of others are you? Are you attentive to the concerns of your brothers and sisters so that your words can provide grace so that as you've received grace, you minister it to one another? We were told earlier on in in Ephesians that Christ has bestowed grace on every member. Verse 7, but to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And as He's poured His grace into our lives, and as you apply your giftedness to service, you also have timely words, especially those offered to the Lord as we pray with each other and communicate with each other with gracious words that build up. And notice, I think verse, six, uh, verse 30 is connected here, though it wouldn't just apply to evil speech that grieves the Spirit, but all forms of unholy behavior grieves the Spirit. But it's probably functioning the, the same way here with, with anger and uh, uh, Back when we looked at be angry and do not sin, he added on verse 27, not giving place to the devil, and I see that as kind of the same function of verse 32, verse 29. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit with your speech by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It grieves the Spirit. Think about some of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah in uh, chapter 63, Verse 9, we're told that God redeemed His people with love and mercy, yet they rebelled against Him and grieved His spirit. Verse 10, they don't go together. They don't jive. How about the psalmist who said how often they rebelled against Him in the desert and they grieved Him in the wasteland. The apostle recognized New Covenant people of God face a similar danger to Old Testament Israel in an act of love and mercy, we can run the risk of rebelling in our words and in our actions. So be cautious, be attentive. As we are attentive about our anger that it be righteous and for a time, so we're measured with our speech that it's only speech that builds up and ministers at the appropriate time for the need of the moment. And then you notice how he, uh, this chapter concludes in verses 31 and 32. This is kind of a catch-all, rapid fire. All these vices and, and, and virtues mentioned together. He says, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with malice." There's six vices. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ also has forgiven you. It's going to be a marvelous preparation for our time at the Lord's table as we reflect upon the life that was lived that we couldn't live, the death that we deserve that was died for us. So in this final exhortation, he moves us from ungodly vices to supernatural virtues. The first... uh, uh, he uses uh, five terms to show the progression from, from the inner disposition of bitterness to open display of uncontrolled and hurtful speech. Notice notice what he said, let all bitterness, a metaphor derived from, from something with a bitter taste. We've had a few of those as we're trying this new eating protocol the last seven months. You try something and, and it gets spit out real quickly because it tastes nasty. And uh, uh, you know, we read in Exodus fifteen twenty three about the the water at Mara, it was, it was bitter. It was bitter. It didn't quench any thirst. The term could refer to hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about the past. Beloved, can we be transparent and honest enough to, honest enough to say to each other, just get over it? I'm going to offend you and you're going to offend me. We just need to get over it. We cannot allow, you know, again, not giving place to the devil for any bitterness, roots of bitterness to occur. There needs to be constant forgiveness as will be mentioned shortly. That bitterness, wrath, and anger frequently appearing together. We're told in Proverbs 29 that the wise man turns away anger, but the fool gives full vent to his anger. Think about the last argument that you had with somebody and think through, as you're journaling, uh, in the moment... What happened? Trying to justify self and give pleasure to the flesh? Given full vent. Ecclesiastes 7 9 reminds us to be quick, uh, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So be cautious. Don't use the earlier admonition as an excuse for your anger, sinful, self serving anger. Bitterness and anger can eventually lead to yelling, shouting, screaming. It can lead to malicious talk. Notice at the end of verse 31, malicious talk denotes any kind of speech that's defamatory or or, or abusive. And when he was talking about our speech, he said the only words that can come out of here are words that build up, none that tear down. So we got this whole laundry list of vices which is the opposite of the virtue that should characterize true believers. That's why he commands in the, in the put on, be kind to one another. Kindness is one of the many one another's. So over forty one one another's in the New Testament that flesh out for us, that unfold body life and show us what is life in the body to look like. Just look for all the one another's. Do a concordance search. Find them all. If you need the list, email me. I'll get it to you. It's incredible what he says here, that in spite, uh, in place of the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander, and the malice, put on kindness to one another. What do people think of when they think of you? This is the first virtue that he gives us, and it's a virtue of God Himself. Psalmist said in Psalm thirty-four eight, "Taste and see that the Lord is." good. There's our word, kindness. He's good. It is His very kindness that leads men to repentance, Romans 2.4. So to be a saver to those of the Savior, are you known as putting on kindness in your life? Are you a kind person? Because not only is God morally good, but He actively does good, displaying His love to people. Are you actively kind? Tender-hearted. We're not just talking about being kind to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but forgiving when they offend. To not do so is, to, is disobedience and keeps you from God's forgiveness. In the same measure, we forgive, we're forgiven by the Father. Is that the regular practice of the Christian church? It ought to be according to inspired scripture. Remember what Jesus so strongly emphasized to Peter? Peter's trying to reckon with forgiveness. How often should I forgive my brother that wrongs me, Matthew 18? Seventy times seven was Jesus' answer. An abundance, a lavishness, a continuousness of forgiveness because the Father and the Son you know the the, the son per, who perfectly exegetes the heart of man knows that there's going to need to be a lot of forgiveness in the body 70 times 7 so always look to the cross believer emulate the way god bestowed his forgiveness on us for this too is an attribute of god he's not only kind but he is tender-hearted forgiving each of his children there's no greater example of tender-heartedness than forgiveness. So we need to cultivate tender-heartedness. Learn to to put on tender mercy as a robe of the king that he shares with his children. If it's God's attribute, it needs to be the attribute of his children. This is what what theologians call a communicable attribute, God's act of goodness, his tender-heartedness, his forgiveness, so that as we've received from the Father... Through Christ, we do so to others. Would you turn the pages of Scripture over to Colossians? And we'll let uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians kind of cinch together all that we've just said. In Colossians 3, you notice again Paul's terminology of putting off and putting on, putting off the old, putting on the new. Colossians 3, verse 1, and picture yourself here as God writes to His people. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. If you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Boy, what apropos words for us as we come to the Lord's table today. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Would you pray with me? Our God, what magnificent words that are not mere words. You have spoken. You have not been silent. And as you speak to your church, we ask that your Spirit would convict us of our many sins, our lack of righteousness. And as you hammer us hard in conviction of how far short we fall, would you constantly on the pages of Scripture show us Christ in whom your fullness dwells, that for every lack that we have in Christ, we have it all. That He is the one that aids us through His Spirit and His Word as we spend time in prayer, seeking to put off all the ungodliness and to put on righteousness for Your glory. Lord, we want to better image You to the church. We want to better image You to the world. So Lord, change us from the heart outward. Change our thought process how we think of others, how we speak of others, and that as they are precious to you, they would become precious to us, and that that preciousness would flow out of our tender speech, that we would have wrapped up in us bowels of compassion as we read about of you in the Old Testament. Accomplish your work for your glory. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.